step into the realm of wellness with the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. In this installment, we're going to be talking about the landmark study, which is about Alzheimer's disease and how Canada's healthcare system needs to brace for an increase in cases. Also going to be talking to an obstetrician who is diagnosed with Parkinson's disease and has set out to help not only himself, but others through table tennis. Dr. Tommy Mitchell and I will let you know just how healthy Canadians are and what are the seven worst foods for diabetics. And do you clean your cell phone? You might think about it. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. And now, Maureen's Health Headline. Well, there is a landmark study that uh, has just been released this week. And there, it is projected that there will be a 187% increase in people living with dementia in Canada by 2050. We need to urgently work together as a result of this study to, toward equity, diversity, and inclusion. Also, research and prevention and care. Joining me on the line to talk about this is Dr. Roger Wong of the Alzheimer's Society of Canada. He's a board member and also a clinical professor of geriatric medicine at University of British Columbia. Good evening, Dr. Wong. How are you? Oh, I'm good. Good evening, Maureen. Glad to be on the show. Oh, nice to have you here to talk about such an important subject that, I mean, impacts pretty much everybody in Canada. People know either a grandparent or a parent or a friend that uh, is living with dementia and all that it takes, all the support and the care. I see patients in my clinical practice who are caregivers for their loved ones who are living with dementia. And this landmark study was pretty significant, especially in terms of how diverse uh, dementia is. You know, it's as diverse as the different diseases and conditions that cause these brain disorders. What can you tell us about this landmark study, The Many Faces of Dementia in Canada? Very happy to share with uh, you and the audience tonight. Uh, I think you're absolutely correct in the way how you opened the show in terms of how commonly we are seeing people living with dementia, including the most common type or reason, which is Alzheimer's dementia. The landmark study, and this is volume two of the study, is something that I would describe as probably one of the most important studies that have been published in the space of dementia care in Canada. It features Canadian statistics and data, and it's published by Canadian researchers, and it has far-reaching implications for all Canadians from coast to coast to coast. In this particular study, we know that in the next 30 years, if conditions were to remain the same as today, there will be a tripling of the number of individuals uh, in Canada living with dementia. That means going from the current number of about 650,000 Canadians living with dementia to over 1.7 million Canadians living with dementia in the next three decades. Now, this study took a deeper dive in terms of the makeup of these numbers. Because for many of us, when we look at the numbers, they, they look staggering. They are concerning. But when, you know, when I look at these numbers, I see not only figures, but I see faces. Faces of people who are living with dementia and faces of care partners, caregivers, their loved ones, families, neighbors, friends. It affects all of us. Now, when we take that particular lens, we discovered that, in fact, there are particular groupings of Canadians who are more likely to develop dementia, according to this study. For instance, when we look at Canadians of Asian ancestry, it is projected that the number of Asian Canadians who will develop dementia in the next 30 years, that number will be nine times their current number in the next 30 years. That means going from the current number of over 46,000 Canadians currently to over 410,000 Asian Canadians. And that includes East Asians and South Asians. So that's a huge number. We also know that um, there is going to be a higher likelihood in terms of increase in the number of Canadians living with dementia if they are of uh, Black ancestry or if they are of Latin American or South American ancestry, as well as within our Indigenous peoples and First Nations. 
So I would say overall, we have a lot of work to do to get us ready right now, taking action right now to make sure that we as Canadians are well prepared to really help all the individuals who live with dementia and their care partners. And what do you think, based on this study, is the most important thing or or a couple of the more important things that we need to do? Well, I I think there are four things. I'll very quickly go over four things that we really need to do. And, you know, to to start with, we have to make sure that um, for all Canadians, regardless of their diversity, who develop dementia, we have to ensure that our healthcare systems are equipped to provide equitable access to care. And that means early diagnosis, um, treatment, as well as support for the people living with the condition as well as their care partners. That's the first thing. The second thing is there are many questions raised, research questions that we need to do in, in order to better understand how do we reduce the risk in terms of individuals who are more likely to develop dementia. So the need for research. The third thing really is through education and support. We know that whenever we are talking about supporting individuals living with dementia, it is not just that one person. It is their families, their loved ones, their care partners. So how do we make sure we deliver these support and education that are in ways that are culturally sensitive, that meet the unique needs? And the fourth and final thing is, at a societal level, we need to have policies, policies that actually focus on addressing the very diverse needs of Canadians who are living with dementia, but also policies that are actively implementable and sustainable. Absolutely. We also need to, I think, better understand dementia in the Indigenous populations and diverse communities. I think, To my mind, I mean, that was something a bit surprising that came out of the landmark studies. I think that is a very nice way to putting it, Maureen, because we know that uh, particular groupings of Canadians are more likely to develop dementia, including our Indigenous peoples and First Nations, including um, some of the underrepresented populations in the Canadian population. I think what we need to do is, uh, on one hand, from a research point of view, have a better understanding in terms of the intersectionality of the reasons or so-called risk factors I mean, clearly the population is aging in Canada and around the world, but it's more than that. The question of not only what we say biological reasons, but some of the non-biological or social determinants of health is really important for us to have a better understanding of how these play out. And what are some of the strategies that we as Canadian society can take right now in terms of supporting and reducing the likelihood, preventing dementia. We really need to prevent dementia. And, you know, one thing in terms of education and when you talk to younger people uh, about dementia, oftentimes I think they think that will never happen to me. I'm so far off from that. I'll never get to the age of 75. You know, I'm I'm 45 now. Uh, But there are modifiable risk factors that can prevent dementia, correct? Absolutely. And in fact, um, one of the things is is that the effect of age and the impact of aging in terms of the development of dementia. From the Landmark Study Volume 2, we are also um, discovering that the number of Canadians who are living with young-onset dementia is also Mm -hmm. projected to increase. By young-onset dementia, Maureen, we're talking about individuals who are younger than the age of 65, which means oftentimes if they develop young onset dementia, they might be in their 40s or 50s, but the impact on them and their families and their their care partners will be quite different. For instance, many of them are still in the active workforce. They're still gainfully employed. Mm -hmm. Many of them are actually in the so-called sandwich generation. They need to look after their own parents or grandparents, and they need to look after their own younger children at home. So who is there to provide help and care for them when they're developing young onset dementia? So, you know, some of these impacts are quite unique and they do need our urgent attention. Just a quick question about women. In this study, in 2020, an estimated 61.8% of persons living with dementia in Canada were female, and more than half of care partners were women. And by 2050, projections show that over 1 million women will be living with dementia in Canada. Uh, That is astounding. And 
I'm also curious if you have any idea as to why this might be. Could this have something to do with the hormonal differences between males and females? Uh, could this have something to do with the stress, the burden of care that is often placed upon the shoulders of women to care for their children and elders as well in the sandwich generation? I am equally concerned about the fact that we are seeing more females in terms of developing dementia in Canada. And you're correct, that current figure is 61.8%. And, and that trend is going to continue. The answer to your question, Maureen, is I think multifactorial. There are multiple reasons. It used to be people are saying, okay, females on average have a longer life expectancy than males. And therefore, since age is an independent risk factor, one of the more common reasons for developing dementia, that is the reason. We need to do more research, but our current thinking is that it goes beyond that particular piece of a difference in life expectancy. And what you're pointing out is there are multiple reasons or what we call factors that may be what we call the social determinants of health. Now, this becomes really important. While we need to do more research, what we can say is that the landmark study volume two shows us the importance of prevention for everyone. And in fact, while there are some things that are not changeable, not modifiable, such as the genetic makeup, for example, or the chronologic age, there are other things that are modifiable, potentially we can change. And I think that is so important for all of us it starts with each of us individually, but then also at a community level, at a societal level, we really need to pay attention. And I'll quickly share with the audience uh, four different ways of preventing dementia, or at least slowing down the decline, delaying the onset or worsening of the dementia. The first one is something that we talk about all the time, which is exercise. Physical activity, what's good for the body is good for the brain. We typically would recommend at least 150 minutes of exercise per week. If you split up over five days a week, it's like 30 minutes a day. It could be a combination of aerobic exercises with anaerobic exercises. Now, each individual may have their long-standing health conditions. They require some customization of the exercise routine. Please speak with your primary care health provider for some advice. But, you know, to get going is important. And importantly, we know that including individuals who are living with dementia, that physical action, that activity is important. There are programs that are run by Alzheimer's societies across the country called Minds in Motion. It's a group exercise program on a regular basis that does speak to the second thing that we can do to prevent dementia, which is socialization. And, and that's really important because we know that social isolation or loneliness can actually uh, increase the likelihood of difficulty in both physical health and mental health. So for individuals who want to prevent dementia or who already have developed dementia, you try to delay the progression, a combination of physical activity and socialization can be really helpful. The third thing really is trying to reduce the likelihood or chances of stroke. We know that stroke can increase the chances of dementia. So risk factors or reasons such as high blood pressure, high blood sugar or diabetes, high cholesterol levels. Sometimes people have an irregular heart rhythm called atrial fibrillation. These are things that can increase the chances of stroke. By preventing stroke, we can reduce the chances of dementia. And the fourth thing is something that people might not have thought about. But again, the landmark study highlighted the importance about hearing. Hearing loss is associated with the development of dementia. Now, in the past, people used to be saying, well, okay, you can't hear what others are saying. Of course, you have difficulty communicating. But now the thinking is beyond that. We need to do more research in order to study the connection between hearing loss and dementia. So remedies to hearing loss becomes an important facet. You know, a lot of people uh, feel that if they... Uh, get hearing aids or they'll deny hearing loss. They feel if they get hearing aids like a cane, it's a sign of them getting older. Um, but it actually contrib it can contribute to dementia. And, and is that because they miss out on the conversation? What, what is exactly the reason? Yeah, we are still doing more research, Maureen, to try to understand the exact reasons. Part of it has to do with the inability to comprehend 
about their communication or the conversation, but there may be other biological reasons. But what I want to say is you did touch on a very important point, and that is people can have fixed beliefs or values or attitudes about their own health condition, the concept of stigma. Stigma is something that we see a lot in dementia, but including in particular in some underrepresented populations. Now, we know, for instance, we talk about, um, you know, in people, Canadians of Asian ancestry having a significant jump, like, you know, their numbers in 30 years from now will be nine times their current number. And yet we know in a lot of the East Asian and South Asian populations, there are fixed values, attitudes and beliefs towards health a lot of negative stigma that is associated with there's the diagnosis cer- of dementia. There's certainly, yes, there certainly is. Dr. Wong I, Wong, I really appreciate you coming on the program and sharing all of this great information with us. We'll get you back and continue this very important conversation. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Maureen. Healthy lifestyle changes, including exercise, have been shown to help slow the progression of neurodegenerative diseases like multiple sclerosis, Alzheimer's disease, and even Parkinson's. But one doctor in Colorado has another prescription. Joining me on the line is founder and CEO at Table Tennis Connections, Dr. Antonio Barbera. Good evening, Dr. Barbera. Good evening, Marina. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. How are you doing in Colorado? Fine. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for inviting me as well. Oh, you're so welcome. I'm going to be in Colorado myself soon. Looking forward to a little ski oh, vacation. Very nice, very nice, yes, very nice. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, one place in Colorado that I haven't been. But anyway, it's a fabulous state. Great skiing. Um, oh, so, skiing, yes. Yes, yes. It's amazing. So, Dr. Barbera, lovely to have you on the show. I was so intrigued when I saw this um, come across my desk, um, this table tennis connections. And just tell me, the listeners, if you don't mind, a little bit about your own story and your own diagnosis. Well, I was an active physician here in Colorado, in Fort Collins, up north of Denver, one hour north of Denver. And uh, uh, at the age of 55, I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. I mean, I had an attack out of the blue. And uh, I lost complete control of my right leg. I mean, I could not move it. I could not control it. And I couldn't have any sensation at all. And so um, I stopped work, working for a while. And uh, I eventually recovered my leg after three months. Um, I decided at that point, oh, my gosh, I probably may start collecting canes. But actually was lucky enough to recover completely my leg. But the process of learning how to walk again was very, very uh, complex and difficult. I mean, more than I thought. So I kept working for almost one year, and uh, almost 12 months after the first attack, I have another attack. And at this point is my left arm. And again, I lost uh, this limb in probably seven hours. It was a Sunday at noon, and at 6.45, 7 p.m., I lost my arm completely. The, the, so the uh, function of your arm. Completely. I mean, the ability to move. Function, yes, the ability to move it. I had no sensation. Uh, the hand was moving completely um, independently. My fingers were moving. I had no idea what to do. Basically, it was not mine. And mm-hmm. at that point, I mean, I had stopped working. I was a, a gynecologist here in town in Fort Collins, and I stopped working. So I was on a short-term disability for a while until... Again, this hand was not coming back, and after six months, I had to stop working. And luckily, again, after nine months, I recovered my limb. Mm-hmm. Um, at that point, I mean, I had to stop working. So um, the first year after my diagnosis was intense, especially after my second attack. I was very fatigued. I was very tired. And I had many discomfort on my skin all over my body. But one of the most uncomfortable a sensation that I have is this constriction on my chest that people call the MS hug. It's like a hug. And uh-huh. people experience that few minutes throughout the day, um, here and there, but I didn't find anybody that was experiencing the same sensation at the head. Basically, I have this constriction 24 hours a day, every day. And these constrictions can be all around my chest, on the right side, on the left side, on the front, on the back. Uh, there was nothing I could do to remove the sensation from my mind. Mm-hmm. Well, it was 
November 2019, and I was playing a little bit of ping pong in my garage with my son, and I felt something strange. I mean, it's a weird sensation, but I had no idea what it was. Uh, we kept playing for a couple of days, and after a bit, I said, oh, my gosh, I don't feel this constriction anymore. Well, actually, I used to call it my elephant. My elephant is sitting on my chest, and I said, William, this elephant is laying my chest and is sitting on a chair. Oh, my gosh, I cannot believe that. I mean, would you believe that the ping pong ball and the paddle finally allows me to remove uh, this sensation, even temporarily? Mm-hmm. So I was curious about that, and I started searching if indeed um, ping pong was going to be useful for other people that have MS first, and two, this discomfort that actually I had no idea how to take care of. And so I found almost nothing on uh, ping pong and uh, MS and multiple sclerosis, but they found some, some information about ping pong and Parkinson and ping pong and Alzheimer. Well, so I started reading, and me as a gynecologist have been far away from the brain for many years, and I learned about the capability of our brain to produce new cells if you challenge the brain enough. And so this process is called neurogenesis, so production of new cells. And these mm-hmm. new cells are able to create new neuronal, neuronal pathway, new connections. Say, oh, my gosh, that's so fascinating. So I started reading more about this. And at that point, I said, well, I could find another path in my life. And that is when I founded Table Tennis Connections. That is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. And, and so you set these table tennis uh, groups up in different communities. And how many do you have set up at the moment? Well, yes. Yeah, so the, what I did, I said, well, okay, I'm going to try to make people aware about the benefit of table tennis, mm-hmm. especially benefit of table tennis for people with these neurological conditions. I mean, those conditions are what we call neurodegenerative conditions. I mean, people with Parkinson, people with dementia, they experience brain uh, cell death. So cells are unable to produce certain molecules, or, and so they become old and they don't function well. So I learned that there is a possibility of challenging our brain, and one portion of our little brain is able to produce new cells. So I start opening this multiple location and I, uh, where I propose uh, table tennis as a form of neurorehabilitation for people with these conditions. Mm-hmm. I created this program that is called Neuropong, that is indeed, I actually complete the sign and I propose to people with these conditions. And I have one location here in Fort Collins where we serve probably 50 people with MS and 15 between, sorry, 50 Parkinson and 15 to any with MS and mild dementia. One mm-hmm. location in Boulder. And we just started a new location in Denver two weeks ago. And I am in the process of having another location in Colorado Springs and one in Grand Junction. Uh, we also created a new chapter as well in uh, St. George, Utah. And at the end of last year, I created a new chapter in Italy, where I am originally from. I used to work wow. in Milano. And, yeah, and I got <laughs> in touch with a friend of mine that is the research coordinator of a neurological institute. And uh, we um, are proposing a study for today as well. And so we are involving the university uh, where I have a position here in, for, in Denver and uh, this neurological institute in Pavia, close to Milan. It's amazing because not only are you changing lives, uh, you're increasing socialization, which if people were listening to the previous segment of the show, that also helps to prevent Alzheimer's disease. Um, but you're also perhaps helping people to generate more brain cells and actually maybe slow the progression of their MS or their Parkinson's or Alzheimer's disease. Um, and what are the preliminary findings that you're, cause you're a doctor and we've, we've had a yeah. conversation, you and I, we had a great conversation last week um, and you're doing some research. So around well, this. Absolutely. Yes. So the goal is indeed not only to make sure that these people may improve what we call the motor symptoms. Those are, especially Parkinson is a, a movement disorder. So these people that are living with Parkinson may be too stiff or may be too loose or may be unable to control their mo- movements. 
Also, people with multiple sclerosis, they have stiffness. Uh, they don't walk well, sometimes based on the stage of the condition or on the grade of the condition. Uh, they uh, spend their life on a wheelchair. Um, so um, we are really trying, though, to pay attention not only to the symptoms, the motor symptoms, but to the person in this entire in, in, complete entity, I mean, the fullness. We, we really are trying to investigate if indeed proposing table tennis to these people can improve not only uh, their motor symptoms, but especially their non-motor symptoms, anxiety, depression, uh, social life, um, uh, sleepness, relationship with their caregiver, the relationship with their partner. So really we are creating a community. And uh, the main goal, the first goal is really to increase the awareness of people about these conditions. Now, mm-hmm. as you were saying, I used to work as a physician. I used to be a physician. And so now I'm working with the Movement Disorder Center of Anxious Medical Center. And we just presented the first data on 26 people with Parkinson in uh, a meeting that was in Austin last November. Um, amazing. I mean, we really are seeing in front of our eyes an improvement of the life of these people. But again, uh, I want to go beyond the anecdotal result. I really, as a physician, I just want to produce data that will be able to show everybody that the multiple benefits that this sport can give to us. Absolutely. As you were mentioning, the importance of social connections. I mean, people with uh, increasing age, they increase also the risk of developing dementia. And nowadays, That's right. you know, the two important factors are um, really offered to people in the attempt to avoid dementia or to reduce the risk of dementia. They are physical activity and social life. Well, table tennis puts together all of those things. So it's a really an honor for me um, to, pro- to provide this service to people with these conditions. Now, don't forget that I am one of them. So when I present this program, I always present my personal experience. That is the way I introduce myself and the way that I try to put everything, everybody at easy. That is a, a, an event, those are hours that we spend together where each of us is a member of that community. And each of us needs to be accepted, needs to feel accepted, and mm-hmm. uh, to share his or her own personal experience. This is why I'm, I'm so attracted to this is because it's, you know, in, in family, you know, in general practitioners' offices, they often just hand a prescription, give a requisition for blood work or an x-ray. And not to say that those things aren't important, but, you know, rarely do they say, how's your life? How are things going? Are you lonely? Do you have something to do? And the other thing I want to say about this is that you don't have to be an Olympic athlete to play table tennis. <laughs> Anybody can pick Absolutely. up a paddle. Absolutely. Anybody can pick it up. And you know what? Yes. You're absolutely right. I mean, sometimes in the medical office, we don't have enough time to bond with a person in front of you that is not a patient, it's a person that is uh-huh. experiencing a specific condition. And so sometimes we rely too much on uh, molecules, on medications without having any emotional involvement in the relationship we establish with our patients. So the what about if this simple intervention, a 2.7 grams, a ping pong ball and a paddle would allow you to have a better quality of life? And when mm-hmm. I say that, I'm really not superficial in saying that because, I mean, we are learning every day now that physical activity is probably one of the most important, allow me, intervention or health style life, the, uh, health, um, lifestyle that really will improve the quality of life. I mean, we're getting older as a population, so we are exposed to a higher risk of getting neurodegenerative conditions. What about if we now start putting attention to the quality of life? Okay, I'm getting older, but am I indeed enjoying every day of my life? Enjoying my day as a human being, as a person, as a father, as a grandfather, as, as a spouse, as a partner. And so, you know, ping pong is probably the, most played indoor game in the world. Think about that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I talk to many people and they tell, oh my gosh, yes, I spent so many uh, n- nights and evenings with my grandkids. Oh yes, I play with my grandpa. Oh, yes, so, uh, 
any vacation, any holidays, we just spend time playing ping pong. Well, the social life, the social impact. What about mobility? So to be able to play, you need to move and you need to be safe in moving. Now, you were talking about protection. What about if I have no idea where my elbow is? What about if I have no idea where my feet are? I had no idea where my entire leg was. I had no idea where my entire arm was. And if I was going to look at that, I said, oh, my gosh, oh, here it is. But I had no idea where my limbs were. So if we can indeed, through this simple and complex at the same time intervention, that has no side effect besides providing you a big smile, besides providing you a community, besides providing you a, a, a support, besides providing a better balance and better movement. Right. Why and not? I have a I have a listener George has texted in would tennis table tennis be a benefit for Parkinson's disease? Yes, George. Uh, uh, thank you so much for your questions. Well, uh, I have as I said at the beginning of this show, I have probably 50 people total with Parkinson's uh, condition here in Colorado. And I have a group waiting for me in uh, um, St. George in Utah one in Colorado Springs and one in, in uh, Grand Junction. Uh-huh. At the beginning, I was just noticing anecdotally the improvement, not only at the tremor. Well, well tremor is probably the last uh, of the serious problem. There are many other um, capabilities um, that people with uh, Parkinson's uh, conditions experience. Now, and I was seeing, I was noticing the improvement, the balance, the movements, uh, the smile on their face. Um, you know, Parkinson still people uh, uh, look at it as a big, t- with, uh, as a, a taboo. People don't know what Parkinson is. Right. Uh, and now are you suggesting, yeah. are you suggesting a right, program right. in your research? Are you, are you having uh, people, you know, play table tennis three times a week compared with people not playing compared with people playing once? Do you have a protocol established? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. In this Neuropone program that we offer at the beginning, there are 16 weeks of intervention ping pong, uh, twice a week, two hours each time. And now uh-huh. in, uh, uh, we, especially now we just finished a, a study with uh, people living with Parkinson. We are studying a new one now with people living with multiple sclerosis. And so we are placing that in a series of clinical assessment about their quality of life. Um, and uh, we present the intervention for 12 weeks and we reassess this people again. And we found amazing, amazing change from the beginning of the intervention, the beginning of, of the class, of the course, and the end of it. And what people especially experienced was this uh, improvement of their quality of life, generally mm-hmm. speaking, really, the sleep, uh, sleeping pattern, um, so, social events, uh, smiling, uh, uh, staying outside of the house. People mm. with this condition, again, they have been for too many years isolated. Yes. They are ashamed of that. The society puts them, puts us at, at the right. periphery because we are the one that shakes. We are the one that have a wheelchair. We are the one that need to have a walker and, or a cane. Oh, why? You're, playing to, you're able to play ping pong on a wheelchair? Absolutely. You have a brain attached to your body. Right. Use of it. course. Now, a lot of people who are diagnosed with Parkinson's disease and MS and other neurodegenerative diseases take medication. Are you are you looking at that? Are people having to take less medication um, after 12, 16 weeks of table tennis? Well, we are noticing an improvement in terms of number of times, for example, of people with Parkinson's condition that they need to take this medication. So mm-hmm. the majority of people with Parkinson need to take a molecule called, um, it's a synthetic uh, dopamine, it's mm-hmm. called carbidopa, levodopa, and sometimes they need to take it five, six, seven times throughout the day. And so they, if they don't take it at a specific interval, they experience this moment, they're called the off moment, when they don't feel well, they are too slow, or they yes. move in an anarchic way too much. And Dr. Barbera, we're going to have to leave it there because we have to go to break. I'm so sorry, but thank you so much. Well, thank you to you for giving me the chance to talk about our product. My pleasure. If people want to donate quickly, where can they donate? They are going to go to tabletennisconnections.org and there is a donate page. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I hope some of the listeners do donate. It's so important. You're welcome. 
you've heard her voice many times before on the Sunday Night Health Show. We're so lucky to have the go-to MD coach. She empowers leaders, physicians, executives, lawyers, and other professionals to help them reduce burnout so they can increase productivity in the workplace and in their personal lives. She is none other than Dr. Tomi Mitchell. Good evening, Dr. Mitchell. Good evening, Maureen. How are you today? I'm fine. Thank you. Joining me on the line from Calgary. Thank you. It's awesome to hear you. Great greeting. Yeah. How, how's Calgary tonight? It's balmy. It's like eight degrees oh, nice. or something. Yeah. Oh, lovely. Lovely. <laughs> Wonderful. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining the show. Um, I, you know, if I were to think like how healthy are Canadians, <laughs> my, mm-hmm. I mean, my initial is just like, oh, it just seems day after day, person after person presents um, with medical conditions that have so many modifi- modifiable behaviors that, that could be prevented, you know, that could have prevented where they are today, like preventing diabetes, preventing hypertension, preventing hyperlipidemia, high cholesterol, yeah. um, and, you know, people who are smoking unbelievably in, the, in 2024, um, people who have a sedentary lifestyle, unhealthy eating, over, you know, excess, excessive intake of alcohol, um, obesity, cardiovascular diseases, number one killer of, of people, stroke. You know, there are so many conditions that we see in clinical practices that are highly preventable. Diabetes, even anxiety disorders, you know, mood disorders as well. Exercise is another great option there. But in general, as a physician, um, what is your perception of how healthy are we as Canadians? I don't believe Canada is a healthy country. For a country that has supposed access to health care and has so many things that other countries don't have, I believe we should be doing so much better. So perhaps I'm an outlier, but I don't think we're healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, I Like you were saying, I see so much chronic illness it's, mm-hmm. and so much lack of education. People are normalizing obesity as just you know, a few pounds overweight. They're normalizing high blood pressure. They're normalizing elevated sugars and diabetes. And it's tragic. Mm -hmm. It certainly is. And yet we're perceived as, in general, a healthy nation. uh, Because Mm -hmm. in part, because the overall mortality rate and life expectancy have improved considerably, although it may have gone down a little bit after the pandemic, uh, and, and how we compare with other developed nations. Yeah. But we, we continue to face these significant public health challenges, and mainly in preventing chronic disease. And, and I think sometimes we perpetuate chronic disease as well, in part by prescribing medications, yes, over-prescribing, exactly. over-prescription. Have, yeah. Yes, we are kept alive by drugs. Long, you know, we're very good at producing. But they're, but they're slowly things. killing us. We might be kept yeah. alive, but they're slowly killing us. Exactly, exactly. And, and the polypharmacy is something else. People are put on medications that don't even work for them. Nobody follows up on them. They're still on these medications years later, not working. They still might have depression, anxiety. There are so many lifestyle and uh, modifiable behaviors that people can engage in. But I find a lot of patients don't want to. A lot of people don't want to, even though they have these numbers in front of them, like high blood sugars and high cholesterol levels, hypertension, that can actually lead to them potentially being on dialysis. They don't realize that with untreated hypertension, you could end up being on dialysis in 10, 15 years of living with that. Yes, and that's why it's important for us to say the truth and like, but look, when you're on dialysis, this is life expectancy. It's not very much left. So I think being so frank and open in kindness really makes a difference, Maureen. I love how you're just so, you keep it real. Uh, Well, you know, I mean, I have to keep it real. (laughs) That's all I know. Um, I should... (laughs) I should sugarcoat it a little bit more. I know, um, but no, I've, nah, I've pretty much don't. been known to tell it like it is. Um, yeah. Yet, if we so if we look at Canadians in, in general, um, you know, we're living longer. Um, yet, 
we, you know, we, we kind of rate or rank, you know, among the top and middle third performers among Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD member states for most indicators, but nearly one in six Canadians, 5.8 million are 65 years of age and older. And this age group is growing four times faster than the overall population. And with that, with that advancing age comes heart disease, comes diabetes, comes mobility issues, comes decreased estrogen net estrogen states, uh, comes prostate cancer, you know, with all of those chronic diseases. And we have more than one in five Canadian adults living with cardiovascular disease, cancer, or diabetes. Yeah. And we wonder why the healthcare system's crashing with the weight of this. So we're looking at, we're doing things the wrong way. We're keeping people healthier, living longer, but not healthy. Exactly. And it really has to start uh, much younger, at a much younger age. One in 25 Canadian adults aged 20 years and older reported having a mood and anxiety disorder and at least one of the four major chronic diseases. One in 25 Canadian adults. You know, I mean, that is a significant amount of people. That's according to the um, government of Canada, how healthy are Canadians. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when we're looking at it from up above, you know, from very high level, you know, we kind of look okay. But when you're on the front lines, you're you're at ground zero. Yeah, it's it's rough out there. You know, yeah, GP practices are overburdened, overbooked. You do a lot of work just to help the doctor's uh, you know, with their productivity and with their mental health. Yeah, for sure. And I still also do my frontline work. Like I was, say, the Sunday and I was in the office seeing patients. And this is the conversations, chronic disease, chronic disease, chronic disease, all day, all night. And it's not just the adults, it's the children. Like the children rates are shocking. Right. I mean, in part because we've gone very heavy on processed foods, we have to have everything quick. That's also partly why um, patients prefer prescription over, you know, let's try and get your blood pressure down by increasing your exercise, improving your nutrition. Um, You know, it's going to take a few months, but you know, it'll be worth it in the end. And, And so much will improve from your kidney function to your sexual health to your moods, to your sleep, everything is better. But it's how do we get that message to patients? I I struggle myself with getting that information to patients. Yeah, it's definitely a challenge. But I think finding what really matters to the patients and find that common ground and then having that accountability, regular follow-ups, check-ins with clear, okay, one shot of gel deals, okay, I recommend, why don't you get like, a tracking device, call it a Fitbit, Apple Watch, whatever it is, bring it for next visit. Let's see what your steps are like. Getting movement and having them come back in. Let's see in four weeks. Let's go get you on that bathroom scale. I know no one likes it, but it's important. This is what we need to do. Let's talk about nutrition. How can we make it simple? And just holding their hands and really helping them makes a difference. But again, hands only one of us and many of them. But... It's just not giving up. I just, I just refuse to give up. I, I, I think we have to. We have to keep on speaking the truth and letting Canadians know how dire the situation really is with our health as a country. It's not good. Tell me about some of the work that you do in terms of empowering physicians. I mean, it, it is a tough job. I don't think people realize just what a challenging job being a general practitioner is in this country. You can see patients... You know, you have about 10 minutes to see a patient. You have to see them. They they are supposed to come in with one issue. They come in with 15. That also has to include, you know, your documentation time, your follow-up, your referrals. I mean, the job is massive. Um, in, in some parts of the country, they're putting in nurses to support general practitioners in their practice. But what do you see when you when a doctor presents to you with burnout and just thinking they, they just can't do this anymore? And what do you recommend for them? I think it's terrible. And I think part of the issue, there's a problem with the system and burnout rates vary depending on where you are in the country because our healthcare systems are so different. Um, number one, take back your power as a physician. You do have a right to pull back and 
make dramatic changes if you need be and also take those little but steps how do, how do the home. doctors sorry to interrupt you but how do the doctors present we don't typically think of doctors getting sick especially oh. mentally or emotionally yeah. so how is it that how do you know somebody is burnt out they look exhausted they're not taking care of themselves they're the pep is gone they become cynical withdrawn errors um just Sometimes they just don't show up like they're sick. Like often doctors, I sad to say, or healthcare providers, they just get ill and don't come to work. Like they die. Like that is literally what happens. It's, um, we ignore all the you know red lights and the signs that are like warning signs. So busy taking care of others, but often neglect for oneself. So you first need to fill that down cup and have compassion and know that you are human, even though the system tries to make you into an, a machine, which is wrong. Um, that That is so true. And, and, and people might be, or doctors might be robot-like. They might, might they present to you like robot-like, completely depleted, heart oh, racing, yeah. headaches, insomnia. Definitely. And you know, you have to have your boundaries, whether it's a system you work with or the patients you have, you have to be like, look, this is what I can do. We're doing our best. And, we have to be compassionate to our doctors because I know many have left because they just couldn't take it. No, they felt like they weren't treated like a human. And it, and we other industries have certain you know rights as far as working so many hours, safety procedures. But doctors, you know, healthcare providers, you can work on be on call twenty four seven for weeks, months, years on end. Nobody really cares, mm-hmm. and that needs to end. It is just a massive job. And the other thing about doctors is that they, you know, for the most part, they're very caring and compassionate. They want to do the best by their patients. They want to, you know, be comprehensive and they, and they are into prevention. They're trying to um, be, help their patients or, you know, be, prevent illness, you know, but it's so difficult when you see somebody maybe, you know, once a month for 10 minutes or once every couple of weeks for 10 minutes to get all the information across. And and that can be exhausting. And and so what are some of the treatments really um, to get doctors healthier and and back into the office? Right. So you have to pause some, literally sometimes pause, reset. When they're that sick, it's like, okay, it's time to take a leave where you pause, wake up, have breakfast, go for a walk, journal, go see a doctor, get some blood work done, do some physio, exercise, Find who you are again. Be a human. Hug uh-huh. your kids. Go to their games. Right. Because like, they miss out on a lot. Yeah. You're missing out on a lot of life. And uh-huh. at the end of the day, when you retire, those are the ones that really matter. And you really hope that you've spent the time to build a good relationship with them while you've been working in your career. They're the and ones that miss about- you the most. Yeah. How about going back into the office once they have recovered? I mean, if they don't make significant changes, it's going to happen. They'll rebound. So Definitely. what are some boundaries. of the... Yeah, exactly. Yes. Boundaries. Saying no to excess demands. And if there's, if there's... And, you know, not every patient will be able to be seen. And that's not... Sorry to say, it's not your fault. It's not your problem. That's mm-hmm. a system problem that needs to be addressed. Because oftentimes doctors are like the scapegoats of the problem in the system. No, they're part of the system, but they're not the ones who are making the executive decisions and how things are run, how resources are used, how funding happens. Right. And the other thing is they not only have to care for their patients, but they have to run a business, essentially. They have to... 100%. Yeah, they have to, um, you know, hire MOAs, medical office assistants and accountants and, um, you know, they, they have to order supplies. There's just so much that that they have to do. Dr. Tommy Mitchell, thank you so much. I really appreciate your contribution. Your, can you give the listeners your website, please? Yeah, for sure. So holistic with an H, holisticwellnessstrategies.com. So holisticwellnessstrategies.com. Lots of S's in there. Thank and then you, you so much. Thank you. Darling. Yes. Thanks for all your great work. Appreciate My it. Today's quiz is about give me two foods that are marketed as healthy that are actually unhealthy. That might be a challenging question for you. 1-877-399-9898.
98. That's 1-877-399-9898. Um, otherwise, at this time, I'm going to read uh, to you or let you know some of the unhealthy foods, some of the worst foods for people with type 2 diabetes. I'm going to start off with bagels. <laughs> um, bagels, you know, they're one of those ones that um, people think are healthy. Uh, that are healthy foods. And they are much worse than bread. They have high calories, high carbs. Uh, they're highly processed. So they are not good. And if you're going to have bread, if you're a type 2 diabetic, then I would encourage you to have multi-grain bread. I do want to meet, uh, read another text message. I'm not 100% sure <laughs> that I understand this, but... Um, Hi, Maureen. It's Steve in Calgary. People will never realize dot, 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 dot. Society will forever stigmatize alcohol and the people who drink alcohol, but for humanity, give you and others a head shake. Wake up. What? <laughs> Are you saying, Steve? Thank you very much for your text. one 399 9898 that's one 399 if you want to call or text. Um, I, I understand. People love their alcohol. They just don't realize that the damage that excessive alcohol is doing to their brain, their mobility, their risk of falls and fractures, their relationships, their mood, their anxiety levels, their risk of Alzheimer's disease, dementia. Um, you know, it's, it, it's socially acceptable, but it has tremendously negative health implications. So I think you're saying, give it up, Maureen, forget it. You know, you're stigmatizing it. If I'm wrong, text me 1-877-399-9898, 1-877-399-9898. Before I go on to some more um, foods, uh, Steve from Vancouver writes, good evening. Is there a test for lactose intolerance? Of course there is. <laughs> Anybody will sell anything um, to, and and they're not inexpensive either. I just quickly Googled food intolerance tests and they range from $32.99 to $199. Um, and, and there's only three left in stock uh, for lactose intolerance home DNA testing kits. I mean, honestly, um, eat healthy, eat a healthy diet, you know, low glycemic index, high protein, low carb, and you'll be doing well. Um, let's see, what else have we got here? 1-877-399-9898. Send in to me your two foods that you think are healthy or that people think are healthy that are not. One, two, give me one or two. 1-877-399-9898. Um, but you know, there are some foods that are terrible if you have type two diabetes and, you know, we have about 10% of people living in this country that are living with diabetes and the number is growing. Uh, you know, we have to be very careful about what we put into our bodies. Uh, one thing is cereal. There, there really should not be cereal in anybody's homes, unless of course they're diabetes friendly, if they contain whole grains and fiber, but they don't taste as good as the high sugar ones, the, uh, the tricks and the Cheerios, um, you know, they can have, um, like frosted flakes, for example, has like 37 grams of sugar per serving, which is just outrageous. So that is an unhealthy, um, food for sure. That's something you want to stay away from. Oftentimes people think honey is better than sugar, but it's not. They think it's safe for diabetics because it has a slightly lower glycemic index than sugar, but it's hardly different from any other added sweeteners. So honey raises people's blood sugar in 30 minutes after you consume it. Very important. There's no advantage to substituting honey for sugar. And, you know, I mean, I'm guilty of this one, I have to say, because I think, oh, I'm, I'm hungry. You know, maybe I missed my lunch. I'm just going to grab some pretzels. They're light. They're not going to do much. And I've completely forgotten <laughs> that they have salt on them. Um, you know, the, these are a go-to favorite. They're easy, an easy snack, but, you know, they are packed with salt and sodium and they consist mainly of carbs. 
And the flavor is not worth the harm to your heart when it comes to pretzels. I'm not a big salt person. I do like it on eggs, a little bit on eggs and a little bit on chicken. Uh, the back of chicken <laughs> has to be like turned over. Anyway, um, there are some lots of diabetic friendly crackers out there, but saltines are not one of them. Anything that has salt on them or that's made with enriched flour, that is not a good thing. Um, let's see, we're having, we have a couple of, uh, entries here, which I like to see Derek from Edmonton, uh, suggested pasta and rice. Are, are they promoted as healthy? Uh, they, they certainly are unhealthy. Um, but I'm, I'm looking for something that is promoted as healthy, but is actually very unhealthy. And when you hear my two favorites, you'll know, probably know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, you'll understand it a little bit better. Uh, and also Steve, um, wrote in from Vancouver, um, Quaker harvest crunch is full of fat. Uh, granola is a junk food. Well done. Yeah. I like that one. You know, we associate granola. That's a very good example with a healthy food, but it is junk food. It is loaded with sugar carbs, uh, unless you make it yourself. And if you have a, um, a great recipe, a great healthy recipe for uh, granola. I'd love to see it because that can be a great snack when it is, you know, combined with uh, good, healthy, healthy things. But like, um, you know, raisins, for example, dried fruit, you know, people think dried fruit, excellent, it's fruit, but it actually contains a much higher um, glycemic load than regular fruit does. Um, we also have, um, let me see, from Yvonne. <laughs> Uh, Yvonne was a winner in December and she also thanked me for receiving her gift card. And if you're the winner, you'll receive a gift card as well. Um, and Yvonne writes in, stay away from soda pop and fruit juices, sweeteners, including honey and maple sugar, cereals with added sugar, all white carb foods, fried foods, cake, and cookies. I always love Yvonne's, um, text messages because they're, they're so comprehensive. Thank you, Yvonne. Dried fruit and fruit drinks, they often promote. That is true. People um, think of that. We also have uh, John who's written in trail mix. Um, I think saying trail mix is an unhealthy food. And it, again, it depends. I think, do I know what trail mix is? <laughs> I'm not exactly. Is that that party food that has like checks in it and pretzels and that kind of thing? <laughs> I think that's what trail mix is. I'm not really sure. I, I stay away from it. Uh, is it trail mix? Do you know? Uh, so trail mix, Jono? yeah, it's usually, <laughs> it's it's like pecans, cashews, oh. sunflower oh. seeds, raisins oh. in there. It's just oh. a mixture of many different things. So it's not granola. It's not the same as granola. No, it's not the same as granola. Uh, yeah, it's just a mixture of nuts. Something different. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, thank you. Um, and you've, you've obviously had it, Jono. Yeah, I, I have it all the time when I'm hiking because it's easy to pack oh. and easy to pour into, into containers. And it's pretty healthy. Um, I would say so, you know, minus the raisins. but yeah, yeah, and you can have a few raisins, you know, yeah. just if you have a cup of raisins yeah. compared to a, a cup of grapes, you know, it's, it's quite different. Yeah. Um, and Bill from Hamilton uh, said honey nut cheerios yeah you know they are kind of promoted as healthy cheerios are actually the plain ones are actually pretty good for you uh and can lower your cholesterol but the honey nut ones they snuck in the sugar in those and so that's not good um and so we're getting coming up to the uh break here and i just wanted to let you know my two that I always think about because so many patients drink them or, or consume them, I should say. And one is orange juice. Isn't that promoted as a healthy food? Oh, it's got vitamin C. It has so much sugar in it. It's so unhealthy for you. And then the other one is yogurt, especially yogurt that is flavored. So, you know, a great uh, snack is plain Greek yogurt. And then I just warm up blueberries in the microwave. You know, if they're frozen, depends on the time of year. And then I mix them in and it's just a much better tasting yogurt. Um, also have uh, Janet from, Al I think St. Albert. Yes, St. Albert. Um, thanks so much for tuning in from St. Albert. Uh, coconut milk. Uh, interesting. You know, I don't know a lot about coconut milk, to be honest with you, but I'm certainly going to look into that. And so that is a 
That is an unhealthy food that is promoted as healthy. Interesting because so many people drink coconut milk thinking that it is healthier. And and I'm curious about those other milks as well, like almond milk and oat milk. So that would be interesting to see. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.